one thing. Who was the captain? His name was Don Luis de Cordoba. And he was on the ship with his nephew, Gonzalo. And they were the only two people who survived. Everybody else either drowned or were killed by the English. Oh. Oh, yes. Not nice. No. If I was having my own doubts about the wisdom of going looking for sunken 400-year-old Spanish treasure, they were being echoed at home. Will you get to keep the money? Well, I have to find well, it first. Yeah, if you do find it. Mm, well, if I do find it is the first thing. Because that's not easy. And you're just kind of assuming that there's a whole big treasure to be found and that I'm going to find it, aren't you? Um, kind of. And do I get to keep any of it? Do you think I should? Mm, a bit, because you did help find it. Anything over a 100 years old found in Irish waters is automatically the property of the state. In fact, if you even go looking for something that may or may not be there, you need to get a licence from the minister. You're right, but you're wrong as well. Oh, your little face, you're very disappointed. <laughs> How did that work? You don't get to keep it, because it belongs to everybody. But at least about a quarter of it. No. Eighth of it? No. Sixth of it? None, none of it. It's not yours, basically. Fifty years ago, a group of divers claimed that they found the wreck of a Spanish galleon. Uh, was it lying flat or was it protruding from the surface? No, it was lying flat. They were the agents of a mysterious civil servant who told them that this ship was laden with treasure. And any plunder that was taken was always transferred to the officer ships for safe storage. But, mysteriously, having found it, they never dived the site again. And he did have information thought he did at least, that there was a wreck on the south side of Davalon. Could it be true? Could the treasure of the Falcon Blanco be waiting to be found? Where did he find it? Or at Davalon. At Davalon. At Davalon, yeah. yeah. And so it can only have come out of the water on the south side of Davalon. That's south side of Davalon, yeah. So yeah. sure. In 1588, 26 ships of the Spanish Armada sank off the Irish coast. Only six of them have ever been found. This is Treasure Island, The Hunt for the Falcon Blanco, an RTE original podcast. Episode 2, They Found Something. Colm O'Brien had been my introduction to the Falcon Blanco. He had dived it 50 years ago with three friends. They had been commissioned by a retired civil servant called Mellis Clune. As a pastime or otherwise, he researched Spanish galleons and he came up with this particular boat called the Falcon Blanca. Somewhere off this amazing island in the west of Ireland, 
Inishbofin. They had, according to Colum, learned from locals where the ship had most probably sunk. And when they dived there, he says they found an anchor in what they believed to be ballast rock from the keel of the ship. Column says he removed one of the rocks from the pile of ballast and when it was analysed, it was thought to be most probably Spanish in origin. There was a lot in Column's story that was compelling, but there was also a lot that just didn't add up. Why, for instance, once they had made this find, had they never gone back? And why, in the intervening 50 years, hadn't anyone else? The place to start was with the man who had sent the divers there. But how do you do that when you don't even know how his name is spelled? Melis Clune. Spell his name? Melis Clune. Melis. I couldn't probably spell it for you because I've heard it loads of times, but I never saw it written. A contact in the civil service put every spelling of Melis Clune we could think of into a database of staff and came up with nothing. On Inishbotham, someone suggested that the Clune family had moved to the east coast of the United States where they had gone into construction. Two weeks of fruitless phone calls and emails up and down the eastern seaboard finally threw up a Michael Clune. He was Mellis's son and he put me in touch with the family historian, Tom. Tom, a little bit frustratingly, after such a convoluted hunt, turned out to live just five miles down the road from me. First things first, mm. what was your dad's actual name on, on his birth cert? Michael A. Clune. Where, where does Mellis come from? I don't know. I don't know. And nobody knows. Even more mysterious. Not really, says Tom. None of his kids had ever asked him why he had given himself such an exotic name because to them, of course, he was just dad. And if he had a slightly mysterious or aloof air about him... There was a very good reason for that. One thing that, as a family, we've always done, even though we're now fourth generation of visitors there, we are only visitors. And we've always been very, very careful not to get involved in anything. It is for boffiners only to decide what they do. Don't get involved in anything. In the late 60s and early 70s, thanks to the discoveries of two actual wrecks, the whole country was abuzz with talk of sunken Spanish Armada gold. Every half-remembered snatch of a story about the Armada was being interrogated in the hope that it would be the X that marked the spot on the treasure map. The Falcon Blanco was, as far as the official record was concerned anyway, wrecked off the coast of the mainland. People of the island of Inishbofin had their own different version of events from 1588, in which the ship had anchored off East End Bay, the crew had disembarked and were given sanctuary, and then the ship sank in a storm. Mellis Clune became an enthusiastic supporter of this theory. He definitely heard the tradition. He probably heard of every tradition on the island. Uh, but none of, none of those traditions would excite him as much as this one. So that would have enticed him to prove what he was being told by locals, and probably by a very few select locals, who were probably rubbished a long time ago by you know, the establishment. Well, how would they know anything ever happened down there? So I would say the incentive was him to prove or disprove that tradition. As convinced as Tom sounded, he really was only guessing about what his father had known. There was no documents among all his dad's papers. He had nothing tangible to support the theory. Nothing that indisputably linked Inishbofin to the wreck of the Falcon Blanco. Nothing 
until Tom dropped this literal dead weight into our conversation about beachcombing. And uh, anything like uh, wood would have been like gold to boffiners because there's no trees in the island and there's no, well, very little peat. And the second thing would have been of um, fines, such as cannonballs, one of which the family acquired. It was given by a family on the east end of Boffins. You have a cannonball? Yes. That came on shore on the east end? Correct. A cannonball. Recovered or washed up on the end of the island that Boffiners believed that the Falcon Blanco went down on? The cautious part of me said it could be from any ship from any other period of history. But a cannonball where the islanders believed the Falcon Blanco went down? You don't understand how much this is kind of blowing my mind at the moment. You have a cannonball that was either dredged, snagged uh, off the east end of the island, somewhere close to Davalon, yeah. or washed ashore in East right. End Bay. Yeah. Is it here? Yes. Can we see it? Yes. On a little stand under the telly beside the DVD player, a two and a half kilo, eight centimetre in diameter, pockmarked and pitted shot for one of the smaller cannon in a ship's armoury. Oh, my Floors God. Needed. Wow, that's... What is that, about two kilos or so? Funny enough, no, I didn't measure it. I Sorry, I didn't weigh it. This and you, you never had the metal tested? You never no. did anything with no. it? Would you be averse to me having the metal tested? No. To see if we can discover anything more about it, yeah. about where it was likely to have been made and... It has quite a powerful effect on you, just holding this uh, otherwise quite unremarkable object, doesn't it, this big metal ball? Because I can feel a pull of history off this saying, come, ask more questions about me, find out more about me. (laughs) Well, that's why you're a journalist. I I have to admit, the fact that you have something that is technically dated back to the mid-1500s is extraordinary. Most of us don't get to hold something that old. Mm. So, I had an anchor, and now I had a cannonball. Undated, unexamined by expert eye, yes, but both fished out of the water where boffiners believed the Falcon Blanco sank. Time for an expert eye. Hello. Hello, Colin. It's Philip from Hello, RTE. Hello, Philip. Nice to speak to you. Colin Martin is the most preeminent underwater archaeologist and Spanish Armada expert you are going to find anywhere. He is the man who is largely responsible for finding the Armada galleon, the Santa Maria de la Rosa, in Blasket Sound off the Kerry coast 51 years ago, which also makes him largely responsible for the gold rush fever that swept the country back then. I asked him, was there any way to put a date on my anchor and cannonball? Right. Well, can I say straight away that um, you won't find anyone in this wide world who can seriously identify, you know, iron cannons and, and, and anchors to with any, any precision at all. Of course. Why would it be easy when it had the chance to be hard? I mean, what sort of size is it? 
from fluke to fluke, it would be my height. It would be you know about a meter and a half. Um, right. And from end to end along the shaft, about three meters. Uh, a yeah. large ring uh, at the end. What's That's a good start. So what, what would the ring would be quite quite sort of you know. Um, a foot or 18 inches in diameter. Yes, it would be easily, yes. Well, that, that, that's a good start because that means that it's an anchor for a, a rope cable and not a chain. Okay. That went on until the 19th century, so at least it's older than that. So, it could have come from an Armada ship, but it could also have come from any ship right up to the Napoleonic period. And beyond that, the world's greatest living expert on these artefacts could say nothing more until he had a chance to study the photos I sent him. The dive was pretty spectacular. Um, I, th- I think we, we, I remember the, the first dive, uh, and it was it had been very clear for uh, quite a few days with the water's crystal clear. Vernon O'Byrne was buddied with Colm O'Brien for their three dives. Divers operate in pairs or a buddy system for safety. And I remember us diving down, going down, 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 and after about, and it was quite bright, but we couldn't see anything. Uh, and then after about 50 feet, it was like the whole seabed opening up to us. It's white sand. It was really spectacular. And we felt as if we were coming from the roof of a great auditorium down onto this huge white, very flat, wasn't much uh, vegetation or anything, big white. It was, uh, and, and uh, I recall um, looking up and the only thing I could see was my bubbles going up to this little toy boat. 100 feet, I think we were just over 100 feet, 100 feet on the surface. Uh, I, it was, for me at that time, was spectacular. One by one, I tracked down the 1969 dive team, all in retirement, some in their late 80s. Most thought that they had pretty clear memories of the three dives. But in a lot of crucial respects, they completely disagreed with the story Colm O'Brien had told me. This is what Vernon thought of the pile of rocks that Colm claims was obviously ballast from the bottom of the ship. An oblong shape, quite big, maybe... Three or four feet by two feet, you know. We discovered this very large heap of stones in the middle of a flat, sandy desert of sea. From my memory, it was only Colm and I sort of noticed this thing, but we we, we discounted it. Didn't know what it was. Lump of concrete. Did you take a sample of it? No. Did Colm? No. And they were so unusual that I actually picked up a small stone that would fit into the palm of my hand and I took it back up with me. No, I didn't. Uh, we didn't dig up any of the rock. Well, I didn't dig up any of the rock. Whether anyone else did, I don't know. I, I couldn't remember. And you were Colm O'Brien's dive like, buddy on correct, that day? Correct, yeah. And that Barry Perry and John Hales would have been some distance away from you? Yes. Barry Perry and John Hales had discovered the anchor, according to Colm O'Brien. But Barry Perry told me that they had found nothing. <laughs> Sand, little rocks, not many fish in that depth. Uh, uh, very little of an interest, to be honest with you. Did you find anything? The galleon? No. Or did you find anything? No. 
We were sitting in the front of my car and I didn't want to prompt him. I was willing him on, though, to remember something, anything, but there was nothing coming. So, eventually, I had to say it. Colm's memory is that you and John Hales found an anchor. Not... No. Found an anchor on my very first dive in, in, in Dokey Harbour, around that area. And that's the only time you've ever in your diving career found an anchor? Yeah, yeah. I remember that clearly. And that's what Vernon said happened too. There was no anchor. The other two divers, did they discover anything? No. Nothing? Don't think so, no. So as I went to meet John Hales, the dive leader and the last member of the group I had to talk to, the state of play wasn't good. Colm was the only one of the three I had talked to who remembered an anchor. Colm was the only one who remembered taking a sample of ballast rock. In fact, Colm was the only one who attached any real significance to the whole escapade. That's 71. But John Hales had something that none of the others were able to retrieve. A logbook. A written record of the dives. I dived in um, Devilish Island um, for Spanish Galleon. He has all kinds of details for this dive, even down to the fish that they saw, but no mention of finding what they had come looking for. Crayfish. <laughs> Nothing to do with archaeology. But what is not there is any record of what you found. Surprisingly, you know, um, what I, wrote, what I wrote down is what I remember was there. When would this have been written for a start? Would it have been straight after or on the day or when you got on to the And probably in the pub at night. You know, it's, it's scribble. It's a scribble. But you have nothing written there about finding an anchor or finding any ballast or anything like that? No, actually, I haven't actually written down. Which only adds to the mystery because John has such a clear memory of actually being the one who discovered the anchor. It was uh, shaped like a Spanish anchor. Spanish anchors at, at that time had a very long stem and had a very large ring. Because they were bending on ropes rather than shackles, uh, they had to have a very large ring. And so did was, it have a wooden shaft, a cross no, shaft? No, that, that was gone. It was just simply the anchor, the iron part of the anchor. So that's a man who sounds like he definitely knows what he saw. But... You go in search of a sunken Spanish galleon and you supposedly find two good traces of a wreck, but your logbook makes no mention of that whatsoever. Were they keeping things hush-hush that weekend with the intention perhaps of returning to Inishboffin and exploring further? What I needed was a dispassionate witness to that weekend, someone with no skin in the treasure hunt game who had watched it all unfold and could remember it all clearly. Unlikely as it seems that either someone like that should exist or that I would be able to find him 50 years later, he does, and I did. Hi, Philip. Hi, Simon. You can hear me, can you? Yes, I can, clearly. That's great. OK, so uh, tell me what you were saying to me earlier on. Just start again from the beginning. The guys, it was in Day's Bar that I got approached. Simon Avis was a 20-year-old history student holidaying on Inishbotham that summer. These days, he lives in South Africa. When the diving party arrived on Inishbotham to find that Mellis Clune hadn't organised a boat for them, they asked Simon to take them out in his little puck-on. Straight off the bat, when I Skyped Simon, he suggested 
that I was right to be sceptical about the diver's account. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. Oh, really? OK. So, so they didn't tell you? No. Oh. I don't think they told anything, you see. That's the, that's the point. They found something, something significant in Simon's opinion, and they didn't want him to know about it. I probably would have been the wrong person to be the boatman. Why? You don't just turn up and say, I'm going to have a look at something and, and then go and do it without me asking a few questions. Were the divers keeping a secret? Had some of them kept secrets from each other? Had they kept a secret so long that they had forgotten about it? On the next episode of Treasure Island, Denial. We weren't hiding anything from Simon Avis, I can guarantee that. Treasure Island, The Hunt for the Falcon Blanco. Reporting by Philip Boucher Hayes and sound engineering for this episode by Brendan Russell. You can download the next episode now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know anything about this wreck, please email me falconblanco at rte.ie and join the conversation online. Hashtag falconblanco.